Welcome back to the Learn Something New Podcast. I'm Michael Q, and today's episode is all about the brain. I want to learn how can we access our brain's highest potential? How does our brain work? And what's the right way to make it work better? Today's expert on this is New York Times bestselling author, John Medina. He wrote the books Brain Rules, Brain Rules for Aging, and Brain Rules for Babies. We're really lucky to have him on, and I'll let John take it from here. Okay, let's go. Sure. I am a, um, a, what's called a developmental molecular biologist. Um, my research interests are the genetics of psychiatric disorders. So I've spent a long time thinking about how the brain develops in the womb at the level of cell and gene, and then what happens when things screw up years later, you get a psychiatric disorder. I'm an affiliate professor of bioengineering at the University of Washington School of Medicine, but I spent most of my research career primarily as a private analytical consultant, mostly to the biotech and pharmaceutical industries. Here's how I wrote Brain Rules, or got to it, because I'm a research scientist. I don't consider myself an author. <laughs> I, I, I guess I do now, Mike. Um, um, I was on an airplane, was what had happened. And I was reading a, an article that said, brain science can predict whether you're going to vote Republican or Democrat. This was a, on a two, uh, an election uh, a number of years ago. And I looked at it and I said, brain science can't do that. How can you say that brain science can do that? And I'm glad this was, uh, in those days, there was a flight with not many people in it because I literally threw the magazine across the aisle with, this is nonsense. So I went home and I told my wife about it. Uh, and she said, well, John, you could sit on your high horse and throw stones at all the people that get brain science wrong. Brain science is extremely complicated. Or you could be a force for positive and say, well, here are some things we do know about how the brain works. If you did that, what would you tell the audience? And it's from that conversation that the uh, brain rules, and I'll just call it now the brain rules universe, uh, finally developed. I can owe it all to an admonishment from my wife. The brain is the body's most complex organ. With 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion connections, how the human brain works is still unknown. In 2014, the Obama administration sought out to uncover mysteries of the brain and launched a foundation called the Brain Research Through Advanced Innovative Neurotechnologies, or the Brain Initiative for short. Since then, we've come a long way. But there are many brain misconceptions still being passed along as fact year after year. John is going to dispel some of those right now. You can, you get all these. You've, you might have heard that there is a left brain personality and a right brain personality. Have you heard that before? Of course. Yeah, take and throw that out. There's no such thing as a left brain personality or a right brain personality. You need both hemispheres to make a freaking personality. <laughs> you may have heard that you only use 10% of your brain. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Yeah, well, go ahead and throw that out, too. An arresting state in what we call the default network. You're probably in a resting state. The brain is at least 40% active, and depending upon the cues and other environmental stimuli that are coming can be much more than that. So a lot of the brain rules, just to, uh, I guess, to uh, underscore the point, there's a lot of really magnificent, terrific stuff my colleagues are doing and I've been doing and others have, uh, uh, have been doing. There's so much that's fascinating to watch. Why in the world would we denigrate it with a bunch of mythologies when there's so many really cool things out there that, uh, that are true 
uh, anchored in peer-reviewed uh, literature that are evidence-based that she can't talk about all day long. That's why the Brain Rolls universe, I guess, was created. There are so many cliches I've been hearing about the brain. It makes me wonder where they even come from. The myth we only use 10% of our brain has been around since 1907, and even then it was considered a misinterpretation of the data. Another brain myth that has been debunked? Listening to classical music helps boost your IQ. That study was done in 1991, and has been proven false numerous times. In fact, its original findings were of a temporary enhancement in spatial reasoning, not IQ. And it doesn't work for babies either. So if you were planning on boosting your child's intelligence by playing Mozart in their crib, spare yourself the effort. If you want to enhance your child's intelligence, make sure they are getting enough omega-3s. A controlled study showed that infants fed formula enhanced with omega-3 had higher IQs than those were fed regular formula. Sure. Well, if we're going to start out on a solid footing, and I'm still going to be as skeptical as ever <laughs> about how the brain works, we're not clueless about how the brain works. We know something about what you just mentioned, what I call the brain's evolutionary performance envelope. We know the conditions under which the brain uh, processes information the best, and it comes from our evolutionary history. Here is the brain's performance envelope. The human brain appears to have been designed to solve problems related to surviving in an outdoor setting in unstable meteorological conditions and to do so in near constant motion. Those are the conditions that, are, uh, that the brain processes information the best. I often use that because I so, am sometimes asked to speak in front of education-related uh, audiences. What is the best brain-based classroom is the question I often get. And I say, to, I say to them, well, I'm not sure what the best brain-based classroom is going to look like, but I know what the worst one looks like. It's the one you currently teach in. And I do some teaching, so, you know, that's the one I teach in also. If you think about that brain's performance envelope uh, uh, to, in near constant motion under unstable meteorological conditions, the exact opposite of that, uh, Michael, is a classroom. <laughs> so we have some work to do. One of the reasons that has, uh, I think something that's been a great joy for me in working in the brain rules world is to touch base with people who do not, who aren't uh, laboratory uh, uh, denizens and who actually have to deal with the real world. And one of the things that's really enlightening for me is to learn from them, uh, particularly for educators, say, what a good classroom actually looks like, and then see if there's anything in the cognitive neurosciences which I would argue is the closest academic discipline to uh, education research, uh, what, what, what a pattern matches between those two. And could those people and, my, and people like myself do research experiments that could optimize what a good classroom should look like so that, you know, in 20 or 30 years, we will know what, uh, uh, what a brain-friendly learning environment uh, actually uh, looks like and what one doesn't. It's interesting to hear the classroom setting is the worst environment to learn in. Since that's the form of education, how our culture measures intelligence. So if our ancestors learned on their feet, how did we ever end up with desks and lectures? The answer? Industrialization. Prior to industrialization, most people worked on a farm by their own schedule. And the new idea of punching in at an assembly line while a boss yelled at them was not going over easy. 
The solution was to make a new generation of obedient workers that would be used to sitting and doing what they were told. That gave birth to the traditional school day as we know it. And it's a little changed in the last hundred years. Well, you can say that uh, um, uh, brain activity that's been going for a while, if you've been thinking about something for a long time, it really is good for you to take a break from it, to disengage. Particularly if you've become stressed. If you're going along somewhere and all of a sudden you have writer's block and you get stressed, one of the best things you can do is to disengage from that and actually go for a run, do an aerobic workout. Do a spot aerobic workout, maybe 10 minutes, you know, two miles an hour. It's no, no big deal. And the reason why for that is really simple. Um, when you get stressed, you will dump a stress hormone into your blood vessels. Uh, that can be cortisol, you may have heard of before. You may have heard of epinephrine. Uh, there, uh, in the UK, it would be called adrenaline. Uh, let's take cortisol, for example, as an example. Cortisol really can, at high levels, hurt learning. So when you become stressed, the opposite of what you should be doing is to continually re-expose yourself to the thing you're being stressed with. And the reason why I say swap it out for 10 minutes and do exercise is that we know that an aerobic workout, even a mild one, a very a very mild one, uh, can change a particular uh, um, uh, cognitive gadget called executive function, which is somewhat involved in the creative enterprise. It's certainly involved in impulse control. And so for a while, you, t- you, you, go, you, you go do some writing, you get your writer's block, you go on the treadmill for 10 minutes or so, and you come back and you feel refreshed. What you've simply done is you've allowed the brain some distraction by the way, we call that indirect attention. Just allow a distraction so that it can wander around for a while before heading back to the problem. That indirect attention he talks about can also be accessed through taking a simple shower. 70% of people get their most creative ideas in the shower because it frees your brain from critical thinking and allows your mind to wander. I especially like it because it's one of the only places you cannot bring your cell phone. Our brains were developed in the in the crucible of the Serengeti and on the slopes of the Ngorongoro crater. We were walking, Richard Wrangham estimates, anywhere between 10 and 20 kilometers a day, seven days a week, all the time. Standard issue hunter-gatherer material. If you're walking, if you're if you're doing a fair amount of walking and then you're crawling up along the sides of the crater and you're and you're running away from a predator and you're running towards prey, you are an ex, you are doing something extraordinarily active. And for millions of years, that activity was a part of our brain development. Everything in the uh, uh, what Darwin would call selective pressure side of looking at brain development comes from the fact that the brain was constantly being re-exposed to aerobic activity. So the more aerobic you can make it, the better it's going to be. And that's why I suggest uh, that you go and, and do a walk. In our culture, where you can sit in front of a, 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 a laptop, heck, I'm sitting in front of my laptop right now talking to you, Mike, and it's been, what, about 10 minutes? If I don't get off my butt and move pretty soon, the blood's already pulled to my buttocks and already pulled to my ankles. You know, in the Serengeti, you stand still for 10 minutes at certain times of the day, you're going to be somebody's lunch. When it comes to storing data, our brains are so powerful. Your long-term memory capacity is endless. And your brain's ability to knit together new patterns is also endless. The problem is, similar memories can interfere with each other. And if you can't recall accurate data, then the memory's useless. To help avoid this, focus on learning one thing at a time. 
This allows your brain to sort and group data, then form the right patterns. Uh, the brain rule is simply this, repeat to remember and remember to repeat. So if we take some, some old data from uh, way back in the late 50s, you can hold about, and it's still roughly true, not completely true, but it's, it's roughly true, that you can hold about seven pieces of information, declarative information, for about 30 seconds. And if you don't repeat that information within 30 seconds, the brain will dump it. Now, notice that I said declarative information. There are probably 20, 30 different separable memory gadgets in the brain, and they work often in a semi-independent fashion, and they'll occasionally consult with each other. But when you are learning to drive a car, motor memory, that's very, very different than the memory gadgets you use to remember that the Battle of Hastings occurred in 1066. And all of those are different from the memory gadgets that you use to remember that if you touch a hot burner, your finger's going to get burned. So declarative memory, uh, that's if we just talk about that for a second, declarative memory is often used in classrooms is the stuff you can declare often as a verbal proposition. So, for example, Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States is a piece of declarative information. And you can hold about seven pieces of declarative information for about 30 seconds in your brain, something that Larry Squire calls immediate memory buffer. If you don't repeat it, your brain will dump it. Now, if you do repeat that information within 30 seconds, you shift it into what some of us call Alan Badley land. Alan Badley is a British researcher who coined the term working memory. We used to call it short-term memory, but working memory is probably a better term. But it will hold, it's, you can think of it as a short-term buffer, whatever word you want to use, where the information will stay resident in your brain for maybe two hours, maybe about 120 minutes. If you don't repeat the information again within that 120 minutes, the brain will once again dump it. So you got a 30 second gauntlet and then you've got a, a two hour gauntlet. Uh, and then for uh, just, to, I guess, to complete the story. And by the way, may I add parenthetically, um, you know, we design classrooms and we'll design, say, in the days before the virus, uh, in a typical high school, you would have five hours of unrepeated declarative streams of information blasting at our students. And if you've got that 30 second and two hour rule, if you learn something in the morning, but then we're, we're required to do homework at it at night, that homework is not repetition to the brain. That homework is new learning. So it suggests that the redesign of a classroom. What if you took a classroom, say a lecture, 50-minute lecture, busted it up into maybe a couple of, uh, maybe 15, 20-minute segments, and then repeated those 15 or 20 minutes throughout the day, say every two hours or so? Would that, it's called an interleaved model. Would that model make more sense simply because you're now following the, the, uh, the rules of engagement for at least declarative memory? The answer is, we have no idea. Nobody has done that experiment, but it suggests a lot of things to try. See, once again, the reason for brain rules is to try and produce an interaction between people who do this stuff for a living and, and professional educators in this particular case who really know their way around a classroom and can help us design experiments that could allow the great flag of the cognitive neurosciences to uh, get into the classroom. Now, let's complete the picture. If you've got 30 seconds and you've got two hours, let's say you repeat it within two hours. The next question you can ask is, how long does it take 
before that memory is set up, before it's cemented into place, before it is now, uh, 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 the the formal term is fully consolidated, uh, which simply means that it's infinitely repeatable and not subject to corruption at repetition. How long does that take? The answer, Mike, is something we know, and it's almost the stuff out of science fiction. It takes years before the memory is fully consolidated. In fact, it can take a decade. If you are the most famous surgical accident in all of the cognitive neurosciences, a guy named H.M., he takes takes about 11.3 years. During that decade, while the the brain is busy consolidating that memory, uh, we have no idea what happens to it. We have no idea where it goes. Joseph Ledoux calls it uh, the nomadic phase of memory processing, but it takes 10 years. The implications of that are staggering because it simply means that something that you learned in the first grade, you have not fully consolidated until you are a sophomore in high school. And when you graduate as a senior, you're not graduating a high school senior brain, you're graduating a third grade brain. Read in John's book that loneliness can be terrible for your health. After all, humans are social creatures. So I asked him to explain this and tell us what we can do about it. Oh man, boy, there are so many ways to uh, approach your very good question. Uh, The biggest might be this. The lonelier you get, the less social interactions you have, the more things begin to shut down. You become at greater risk for depression. You become at greater risk for anxiety. Uh, You become at greater risk for certain cardiovascular disorders. In fact, the lonelier lonelier you become, the more likely you are to enter into something we call low-level systemic inflammation which if, if, uh, uh, um, if it's an inflammation, just standard old inflammation, but it's, it's systemic throughout the body, but it directly affects p- particular regions of the brain, particularly those regions of the brain that have been coated with, uh, you may have heard the term before, a myelin sheath. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, under the microscope, it looks like white matter. You've heard of gray matter. Well, that's part of the brain, and, but there's white matter too. And the sheath is actually an insulation. That sheath works with nerves like uh, a plastic coating works with wires. It helps insulate it and, and makes a more efficient transfer. Well, when you get lonely, that the inflammation attacks that myelin. And as a result, you actually suffer brain damage the lonelier you get. So we now know that loneliness, loneliness is nearly as toxic, depending on the age group you're looking at, as smoking is. No kidding. So the whole idea of a senior or virtually anybody, particularly now when we're in the virus, because this is not just for seniors, although seniors are more vulnerable to it, uh, um, uh, everybody needs to be out there socializing. And there's a strong evolutionary reason why that's so. And we can talk about that if you like. Yeah, definitely. Okay. The, uh, um, we actually think that the reason why we survive, this is Robin Dunbar's uh, social, hypo- social brain hypothesis. It's, that's what it's called. We survive because we learn to cooperate. The, uh, uh, um, you, there's a couple of ways you can become the apex predator on the planet. You could, for example, double your biomass, okay? become the biggest, baddest, meanest creature on the block, <coughs> Excuse me, and therefore dominate the, the environment in which you are. And if you're lucky enough, you could become apex. Well, you can be so you can grow a bigger body. That takes millions and millions of years. But you don't have to have you don't need all of that amount of time if you could double your biomass, not by making your yourself bigger, 
but simply by creating a brain that could create the concept of ally so that you could have a friend. And if you could coordinate, if you could cooperate in your behavior with that friend, that is essentially doubling your biomass without the requisite uh, uh, need to spend millions and millions and millions of years trying to, uh, trying to get your body column bigger. That ability to cooperate meant we needed to socialize. We actually think that socializing, that socializing behavior of ours, is the reason why we became the apex predator, because we could cooperate. And it's so much a part of who we are that if you remove it, if you make us lonely, if you cut us off from other people, you know, you can go crazy. You have lots of awful things that can begin to happen, and neuropsychi uh, neuropsychiatric issues are only the start. So we need to socialize. Aging populations need to socialize. Teenagers need to socialize. Michael, you and I need to socialize. The effects of loneliness really blows my mind away, especially since so many people are literally isolating alone during quarantine. So how can you solve the problem of loneliness when we're not allowed to see anyone? The solution is to get a little creative. The fact is that making art is a social act. There's evidence that creative expression cures negative feelings, including loneliness. The Foundation for Art and Healing started the Unlonely Project, which is designed to help you get started on your creative path, no matter your artistic ability. Uh, for example, if we go back to the seniors for a second, uh, Seniors that are highly social, their rate of cognitive decline is 70% less than, uh, 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 than people that are lonely. Their memory decline is half of that of non-socializers. That's why I call it vitamin S, because it isn't just a good idea and you feel friendlier and, and you're going to rescue yourself from certain affective disorders like depression and anxiety, it actually changes a whole lot of brain function. And socializing takes a tremendous amount of brain power. Mike, you and I are talking, but it takes a lot of our brain power to stay with each other, which is just like exercises for the brain. So having a friend is a little bit like taking a mental gymnastic workout in the most delightful way possible. We've all been told since we were children that reading makes you smarter. And still, only 42% of college graduates after school. Okay, so I get it. We should read. But what kind of reading should we do? I personally prefer nonfiction and biographies. I like knowing I'm spending my time learning rather than reading for entertainment. So I was surprised to find that a study published in the Journal of Brain Connectivity found that reading fiction is more powerful in enhancing and improving brain function. This is because fiction puts you in another person's shoes and trains you to flex the imagination in a way that's similar to muscle memory. Yeah, well, learning is, uh, the more you can do it, the better it is. There's a couple of reasons why. For example, uh, if, if you do nothing but read, say, 3.5 hours per week, you are 17% 17 less likely to die by a certain age. No kidding. Reading, actually, if you're doing it regularly, uh, uh, um, if you do more than 3.5 hours by, a week, by the way, it goes up to about 23%. Reading is good for uh, 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 your brain because reading is good for your health. <laughs> so if you want to live longer, get out a book and start reading it. 
There are specific reasons why learning, though, is an extraordinarily important uh, component in the aging brain. One of them is that learning requires you to step out of your own experience in order to uh, apprehend information. Have I assume, Michael, when you read a book, let's say you read a, a, I don't know, if you're a Tolkien fan, then Lord of the Rings, or if you are an Ernest Hemingway fan, uh, um, uh, whatever, um, you start almost immediately imagining the, the, the realm of the brain that's being active. Yeah? Right. Uh, I, I, I just finished reading John Steinbeck's Cannery Row for the, like the 10th time, and I'm always right there in California when I do that. That exercise we call imaginative transposition or virtual transposition because you're transporting yourself into another world. That is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. The brain has to be all on its game to do it, and the more you do it, the stronger the brain becomes. The stronger the brain becomes. This has what we sometimes call far transfer effects because after you've started to learn a lot of things, you, it becomes easier to learn more things and in other cognitive domains. So I always suggest to uh, uh, seniors that if they really want to keep their brain sharp, for God's sakes, get yourself into a book and start learning something. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that learning is often done in the United States, and I, I would argue around the world, often done in a social context. You go to a class and are constantly meeting up with other people, at least in the days before COVID uh, came along. That ability to meet with other people produces social dynamics, yet you're still learning something new, so you get a double benefit by going to one class. You learn something, something bigger than yourself, something that you have to imaginatively transport yourself to. And number two, you learn it in the context with other people and thus are taking a big helping of vitamin S. So yeah, learning can profoundly affect uh, the, uh, the elderly brain and in the most positive way possible. I want to keep my brain sharp forever, but we all know that's impossible. So I asked John, what are some exercises that I could start doing now so that when I'm in my golden years, my brain's as sharp as when I was a kid. This is sometimes called the counterclockwise experiment that was done by Ellen Langer, Langer at Harvard. Um, it was actually written up in the New York Times a number of years ago, but um, she designed a counterclockwise experiment like this. She, she took into account something that's called retrieval bias or the reminiscence bump, which you just described. What it is is that if you ask somebody, say a 75 or 80-year-old, what you remember the best. And these are difficult experiments to do, but they have been done, and I think, in a responsible way. What do you remember the best? You will create a curve. Everybody will answer the question in virtually the same way, or they'll have the same curve. They remember everything the best, the things that happened to them between the ages of about 15 and 29. It's a 14-year hotspot that's sometimes called the reminiscence bump because you seem to remember that better. You remember the order of it better. The books that you felt changed you, you read when you were between 15 and 29. The music you used to listen to, this used to drive record executives nuts because uh, in the days when there was a top 40, people, when they reached the age of 30, quit listening to new stuff and then started bemoaning for the rest of their lives that the best music they ever listened to was when they were teenagers. So that's the reminiscence bump. 
<laughs> Ellen also showed that reminiscing can affect behavior in a very interesting way in that it can improve dopamine function in the brain. It actually uh, elevates dopamine levels, which is a big deal for the aging brain because a natural consequence of aging is that dopamine levels go down. So what she did is that she took an experiment where she took a, an old monastery that I think was west of Cambridge, took a bunch of 75, 80-year-old men, and, and turned that monastery into a calculated reminiscence bump of a year. I'll just say 1959. I'm not sure that was the right year. Uh, in that time, for a whole week, they did nothing but we were re-exposed to everything that occurred to them in the year 1959. So it would be Dwight Eisenhower as the president and old songs and old food. And at the end of the time, this is a pre-post experiment, measured their cognitive function before and after and found some extraordinary things. Hearing improved, memory improved, processing speed improved, near point vision improved for heaven's sakes, manual dexterity and whole body dexterity improved simply by having people be re-exposed to everything that happened to them in the place where they remembered it the best. So my counsel is to close the, get to close with this long-winded answer. You should design, and you should start collecting this now. I'm 64, and what I've done is that I've started collecting all the things, the little totems, the, the music, the, the things that happened to me between the ages of 15 and 29, and I'm going to decorate an entire room for it so that every once in a while I'll need to go into that room, I can get this dopamine lollipop. I could just get a burst of nostalgic activity for a period of time. And I suggest everybody do that. It's good brain science. That's the end for today's episode. I want to thank John Medina for coming on the podcast. I learned so much from reading his book. Go to his website, brainrules.net. You can go to Amazon too to buy his books. Guys, I've been Michael Q, and now I'm going to find something new to learn. Music.